The letter of Paul to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died. For the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, Do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, And long for my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even when I was at Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. An exercise in futility is following that, quite frankly. Well done. Very well done. I hope you know that the the reason why we do this is not as though it's some freakish talent show to bring up. Throughout the whole book that we've been preaching through Philippians, we've had the readers come up and, and recite the Word of God. And they've been standing here with the words behind them. I hope you've picked up on that. And and our endeavor is, as a church, to store up the Word of God in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. So I I hope you realize this is not an exercise of, of pride or, look at our church, we've got the Bible memorized. No, no. Quite the opposite. We realize we are wretched sinners who needs the Word of God, the revelation of God stored up in our hearts that we might not sin against him. So let us go to prayer and ask God to bless this time.
Heavenly Father, we, again, we need you every hour. As we plead with you, Heavenly Father, that you be gracious to us in this little bit of time that we have left. That your word would come alive in our hearts. And that we would behold all of your glory forever and ever. Amen. The life of a contrarian is needlessly difficult. We oftentimes see people enjoying themselves, enjoying something, and then we know in our hearts, either because of our our folly or because of our pride, that we can't go over there and and enjoy that simply because other people are, are enjoying it. And so then we're relegated to... Reading obscure dead people because, you know, we can't read anything popular or to listening to, you know, obscure classical music. Well, by God's grace, over the last six, eight months, he's begun to shed this from me a little bit. And so I've, I've been taking steps more into popular music. So I've been <clears throat> Beethoven's Ninth, for example, is one of the ones that I've just been digesting again and again and again over these past six months. And it's it's beautiful. It, it's, it's Beethoven has this masterful work, and it culminates in this, this ode to joy. It, it, it's, now, it, its underpinnings are humanistic, and it's, but it kind of has this, uh, maybe a veneer at best, of, of divinity. And... Uh, but it's this ode to joy where there's, they're just effusing their joy over one another, over one another because of this brotherhood of man. And they're culminating this whole movement, an hour and 20 minutes, building up into this culmination, which is the ode to joy. Philippians, this book of Philippians is Paul's ode to joy. He's again and again and again. He's rejoicing and rejoicing and rejoicing. And he's, re- he's rejoicing in all that they've done. How they've partnered with him. Not only just sending him uh, some, some money while he's in prison. But even when he was in, uh, in other cities. In Thessalonica. He was, they were supporting him then as well. So it, it's beautiful. Because it's not... Like in the Galatians, in the book of Galatians, he needs to correct their theology. Oh, you foolish Galatians, how, how quickly you depart from everything that I've taught you. And you're turning right back to the law that we've said, well, the law is dead, there's no righteousness through the law, you can't do it. But yet you're going to go back to it, why, why are you doing that? Or the, the Thessalonians, where he has to remind them about the, when the Lord is going to return and that, no, you... He's not here yet. You you still have to work. You're like don't don't give everything up, but keep working and longing for the day of God to be fully revealed. What's beautiful in all of this is how he orchestrates this whole book. So when when we're talking about Romans, right? It's it's this. Linear argument, proposition A is true, here's the verse, therefore proposition B must also be true, and you just take one step at a time, one step at a time, one step at a time. But but Paul, in all of his joy, seems to be just focusing on Christ and putting him up as this jewel throughout the whole book. And he's saying everything 
rejoice. And what do you do? Well, you've rejoiced not in and of yourselves. I'm not rejoicing because of the money you gave me. I do appreciate it. By the way, I, I can live in all circumstances, whether I have a lot or a little. But, but thanks. Thanks for the money. But I'm rejoicing and I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And then he brings in, in Timothy. And he begins to, to tell them. What does he do? I hope to, in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He says, for I have no one else like him who's genuinely concerned for your welfare. For all the other people, what do they do? Well, they, they're like you and me. But they seek their own interest, but not Timothy. He actually seeks after your interest. So Paul is telling them, be like Timothy. And in being like Timothy, you're going to be like Christ. Or conversely, you could also be like Epaphroditus, who's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and he's, he's your messenger and minister to my need. Be like him, who for the sake of the gospel became sick, even, even to the point of death. So Paul is not elevating these men. He's not elevating uh, Timothy. He's not elevating Epaphroditus and saying, be like these men. But rather he's saying, don't you see how these men point you to Christ in that same way, in that same degree, uh, in that same degree, be like them. So that your life too might be oriented and might be fixated on Christ. That even uses his own self as an example. He says, well, look at me, yes. Okay, so you, you want to brag? Okay, we, we have nothing. I was, yeah, I was, okay, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We can play this game if you want to play it. Okay, that's fine. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I didn't just read it. I was... I was one of the teachers. I was the guy that everybody looked to. I was one of the Pharisees. As to zeal, it wasn't cold to me. I wasn't, I wasn't just that guy who read the book and had no affection for it whatsoever. As for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church because I knew it to be true. And if Jesus Christ was claiming what he was claiming then everybody who worshipped him must be killed. Because he is claiming to be God. And everybody is worshipping him. So, so my zeal, I'm not, I'm not cold, I'm not, I don't just have this knowledge without affection, but as for my zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. And as for righteousness under the law, see how he, he kind of prefaces it, not just righteousness, but righteousness under the law, blameless. But do you know what all of this is? All of the things that we look at. All, well, look, look at my degrees. Look how much I've published. You know, Google my name. You see all of my scholarly works out there. It's rubbish. Is what Paul is saying. But. Christ is in the middle of it all. This Christ. Joe beautifully preached on several months ago, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it like, so, like we hold on to everything of this world. 
But he emptied himself, and he emptied himself into humanity, and he was taking the form of a slave. And being found in human, in, in human likeness, he humbled himself, and he didn't just humble himself, he humbled himself to the point of death. And not even that, to the point of death on the cross. Do you see how Paul is orchestrating, building everything around this? So when you see the when you see the book of Philippians, not just when you read it, but when you when you see it in your mind, you see Christ there, right in the middle, and everything else is pointing to him. All of his sacrifice, how he, he gave up everything to redeem man, that we might come and worship him. And what Paul is inherently inviting us to do when we see this book structured in this way is to begin to wonder. Well, where is Christ in my life? Where is He in my life? Some of you, he's, he's, he's way behind you. He's some spiritual experience you had several years ago. Maybe He's the God you prayed to at a spiritual high on some camp, which is fine. But there's been nothing since then. Maybe He's that... That God had got you out of that bind at that one time and you, you said that you would follow Him. But there He is, way, way behind you. And He's getting further behind. And further and further behind. Or maybe He's not behind you. Maybe He's, he's above you and He's this model of perfection that your parents have held up to you. And so you know... That you will do the right thing. You don't know why, but you're going to do the right thing. And part of doing the right thing is that you just come to church. You have no desire to be here whatsoever. Quite frankly, you're, you're resentful at your parents and you're resentful for the fact that you're here. But Christ is above you and he's some lawgiver who must be upheld and you must live under him perfectly. Or maybe he's not just behind you, maybe he's not above you, or maybe, maybe he's before you when you don't believe in him now, kids. Maybe you don't believe in him now, but you know, oh, well, someday I will. Someday I will. Someday I'll have more of a devoted life. Someday I'll start enjoying communion with him once again. And you know, it's always out in the future, out in the future, out in the future. And it remains there. Maybe he's not behind you. Maybe he's not above you. Maybe he's not before you. Maybe his Christ is below you. And you have no desire for him whatsoever. He's nothing more than some weak moral teacher that you don't even care for those mortals because quite frankly they get in your way and you want to enjoy yourself. What Paul is inviting us to see that Christ is neither behind us or above us nor in front of us nor below us, but Christ is the center of everything. And so we don't even think, where is Christ in relation to me? We begin to see, where am I in relation to Christ? He is the pinnacle of all of creation. He is the one that unites all of history together. And Paul is beginning to bring us to see that. And I hope that your eyes are seeing that in your own hearts right now. So we must examine ourselves. 
Where is Christ in my life? Best test? What have you thought about this past week? Chances are there's dozens of things that you've spent more time thinking about than Jesus Christ. And there you have your answer. What is the center of your life? So, okay, so we ask ourselves, what is, where is Christ? Is He the center of my life? But then we ask, okay, well, He's not. How do I, how do I pivot then to make Him so He's not just a behind me or above me or below me or in front of me? How do I make Him the center of my whole life? And this is the ironic part of Christianity. Beloved, you must. Yes, you must. But you can't. You can't. And this is, begins to begin, uh, it's frustrating at first. Like, well, no, you, I know I should do it, but yes, I can't do it. And when you begin to realize that, yes, it's frustrating at first and it's, it's hard to digest because it, gets, it goes against all of our human pride. And then we realize this is the beauty of it, brothers and sisters, is that we can't. If you could do it, you would be the one we are all singing to. But you can't. The blind can't make themselves see. The deaf can't make themselves hear. Those who are spiritually dead cannot bring themselves to life. We need someone or Jesus Christ to come and act on our behalf. So what do we do? When you can't, you just cry out to God that He will do it for you. And the very fact that you are crying out to God that He would come and save you or to orient your life in such a way that God is, that He's no longer behind you or before you, but that He is the center of all things within your life, then you begin to realize that, oh, He already is doing it. The very fact that you're here Let's be honest, the very fact that you're sober and here is an act of God's grace in your life. This is evidence of God's grace. That God is working in your life and you begin to see, oh, I can't do it. And that's the beauty of it all. So then when you know, when you go through all of these trials, then when you see that you can no longer do it, you go, well... All right, so what's the fruit of it, we should just say? What's the end of it all? We have Jesus Christ. We begin to ask, where is He in my life? Paul is inviting us to make Him the center of everything in our lives. We say, well, where is He in my life? Well, He's, he's quite distant, maybe. Maybe you do cherish Him and love Him. But then we should all be asking, how do we pivot our lives to Him. And again, we can't. We need His grace to work within us to do that. And we cry out to Him. We read His Word. And His Spirit begins to slowly, slowly, slowly work in our hearts. And then you see what the end of it all is. We go back to these verses. That Jesus Christ humbled Himself and became humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Well, what's the end of it is all? Therefore, God highly exalted him 
And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And heaven and earth and under the earth. Not for our glory, because we're not the ones who've done it, but we're doing it unto the glory of God. This is the beautiful thing, is when this is true, when Christ becomes everything in your life, everything in your life. So when you're thinking about your marriage, you're going, how can I honor Christ in my life? How can I cherish my bride as Christ cherishes the church? How can I be industrious and creative as Christ was on creation? And you see how Christ just doesn't become something that you, you compartmentalize to maybe a, a time of sobriety on Sunday morning. But no, He becomes everything in who you are. Every relationship is, is pointing towards this ultimate pinnacle of all creation. And that is Jesus Christ. And when that happens... Your life is oriented to Jesus Christ, but then even your thinking and how you relate to time and everything that's going on. So the the trials within your life, you know that they are true, undoubtedly. But they are temporal. We rejoice that If this is true, if Christ is the center of all things, if He is the pinnacle of all creation, if He is the sum of all history, then what we are endeavoring through in our suffering is just like momentary affliction compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in Christ Jesus. It is then... When Christ is the center of your life that we can long for the day when the perishable shall put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal. Then shall come come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We can also be like those Brothers and sisters who do not grieve as those who have no hope. And all of this is true because Jesus isn't just a, a moral teacher to make you be a better person. He's just not the one who teaches you seven principles to be more successful. That, that, that's rubbish. All of this is true and all of this matters because Jesus said... I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. When we believe in him. And where is all of this going? Not even in your own life. Not even in scope of our church here. But all of this is going to a time when Jesus Christ just won't be the center of our lives as we live here in this particular time. But it will be revealed that He is the center of everything. 
And we will be there and hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Not behind them, not before them, not above them, not as a rule keeper, but no, God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is where we are going, brothers and sisters. In the final revelation of everything, we will see once and for all that Christ is the center of it all. And the beauty of the Spirit working in us is again that we see that and we are able to live that out. Even though we are encumbered by this flesh, even though we suffer and we suffer greatly, even though death is on our horizon. We begin to live now with this glorious hope that we will be with Him forever. And He is more than enough. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this ode to joy of Paul's, of this, this rejoicing and rejoicing and rejoicing again and again and again. But God... We, Uh, there's nothing to rejoice in outside of you and the finished work of your Son. Let us rejoice in that, Father. Be with us as we come to partake of your table, partake in the work of your Son. Let us rejoice in all that you are and all that you've done for us and all that you will do for us. Not just giving us better lives now, but God, giving us yourself throughout all of eternity. So God, show us your glory. Amen.